Welcome to the Augustine Podcast, a conversation about the life and work of Augustine of Hippo. I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard. Today I'm talking with Dr. Michael Dlowaski. Dr. Dlowaski is an assistant professor of theology at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology in Berkeley, California. Before serving in Berkeley, he was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Dlowaski received his BA from Summit Pacific College and received both an MA and THM from Regent College in Vancouver, Canada. He earned his PhD in theology from the University of Durham, where he studied with Dr. Lewis Ayers. He is the author of several articles on Augustine and Augustaniana and the Scottish Journal of Theology. He is also the author of Rhetoric and Scripture and Augustine's Omiletic Strategy, Tracing the Narrative of Spiritual Maturation. Dr. Dlowski, thank you so much for joining me today. Let's just begin by hearing a bit about you. So just tell me a little bit about your life and your work, what you're doing now, and how you got here. Sure. Um, so I am currently an assistant professor of um, theology at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology, which is part of the uh, Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. Uh, prior to this, I uh, served for a couple of years as a postdoc at the University of Ottawa, which was nice because it gave me a few years to focus on research and kind of launch um, my next project after my doctoral work. So that was really helpful. Um, and before that, I finished my PhD at uh, Durham University in uh, 2017 on Augustine. Um, so I guess, you know, you could say that my research has focused specifically on Augustine. And um, I guess it's kind of revolved around his use of rhetoric, um, his understanding of you know, selfhood and identity, um, as well as his use of scripture is kind of woven into uh, pretty well everything that I've done. And so my interests kind of revolve around those three aspects. And I'm not sure if my interests are driven by, by if, or sorry, if my research is driven by interests in those three areas, and Augustine just happens to be the guy where they converge, or if it's the other way around, if you know I'm I'm drawn to Augustine and um, those three areas kind of happen to stand out to me. So I'm not sure exactly how to frame that, um, but that's I think that's kind of how I at least certainly how I think about my own um, research at least at least so far. Well, that makes sense. If it's not Augustine in that sort of research, are you pushing towards selfhood and rhetoric and other things? Or yeah, one of the really I guess beneficial things, certainly from my perspective, beneficial things about doing work on Augustine is that you have to almost engage with um, other areas and other figures. I mean, when I'm talking about selfhood in Augustine, I mean, you can't really talk about selfhood in Augustine without engaging pretty substantially with, you know, Neoplatonism, and then also with, you know, um, even Descartes or, or, you know, Taylor's uh, narrative that he structures. Yeah. Um, even Freud, you know, like, so you have to engage with some of these figures in order to kind of orient yourself to the conversation. So that's kind of a, um, certainly the way I see it anyway, is that it, that's a real benefit of studying Augustine, is that you're sort of forced to engage in much larger, bigger conversations pretty much all the time. Um, at least that's the way I go about it. No, I think that's right. And I found the inverse to be true, right? Like, you try and engage Taylor or Descartes or right. uh, Heidegger, it's like, well, you may need to engage Augustine just to get off the ground either way. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what 
what got you into Augustine? Was it patristics and theology and Augustine, and then you got into these other interests? Basically, how'd you get into academia? How'd you get to Durham? How'd you get into yeah. selfhood and interiority? Yeah, so my uh, my journey, I guess you could say, is has been sort of um, uh, um, a bit selfish, I guess you could say, along the whole way. I mean, I, I have consistently just been I had questions and you know when I when I first finished high school way back in whatever year it was finished high school and I decided you know I'm going to um, I had been brought up you know in the Christian faith and I thought well I'm going to spend some time trying to figure this out on on a serious level so I want to study a little bit of philosophy a little bit of history a little bit of biblical studies and, and so forth and so I did that and I and I spent four years kind of wrestling with what I thought were you know the big problems and I realized that I had more questions, of course, than I had answers and, and I needed more time. And so I just I just kind of kept going. And every year it was just like I just have more questions. I have more things I want to learn. And um, it wasn't until I was in um, graduate school. So I was I was doing my master's. And that's when I first read through Augustine's Confessions for the first time. Like before that, I really didn't engage that much with you know patristic uh, theology at all. And um, and so I engaged I, I read Augustine and. Like that first time through um, the confessions, most of the stuff he said, I, I, I honestly didn't understand. I didn't know what he was talking about. I was confused. But underneath all of that, there was something that drew me to him. And I don't know if I can fully explain what it was. I think if I kind of venture a guess, I think it's because I got this sense that he was a man on a journey. He was on um, he was he was moving sort of towards something. He was searching for something. And I think I felt like that's what, you know, I was that's the journey I was on, too. I think this is a lot of people's experience of course, yeah. when, they, when they read confessions. Right. So I'm not saying anything that's that unique. But at the time, I mean, it was just like it was just it was almost like being hit with a backpack full of bricks because it's just like, how in the world is there somebody who lived so long ago that's saying all the stuff that I wish I could be saying, you know, he's thinking these thoughts ahead of me kind of thing. And, um, and, and so I just, you know, I just sort of like fell in love with the confessions in particular. And then of course, as I delved deeper into him there, you know, his whole, um, corpus kind of opened up and I, and, and I've engaged with a lot of other areas as well, but, but I've never really left that, you know, that sense of this guy who's on, a who's on a journey, who's searching for something, who's, you know, searching for wisdom, searching for truth. And, having somebody who's like you know a partner and a guide along that journey with you um is like to me it's just like remarkable and so to be able to spend your days like engrossed in studying him and his journey um was like when i had that opportunity to do like further phd work i thought well of course why wouldn't i do that you know <laughs> so um so i think that's kind of that's what drew me to him for sure and i, I think that's really what's keeping me um on him why well, i can't i can't kind of get away from him even if i wanted to um i keep i keep finding myself going back to him and the other thing i guess is like as you mentioned earlier almost anything you want to talk about any kind of any topic you you're interested in you can find a way to get back to augustine you know in some way he's an important figure and so i just feel like you know no matter what question i have i'm sort of in this position now having you know dealt with him for a few years i'm in this position now where it's like any question i have i find myself sort of filtering back through to him and he has something to say on the topic so um you know all that to say i think i think he's he's got this pull he's got this this draw that i think is kind of unique not that he was you know the only man 
on a journey of that kind. But I think the fact that we have so much um, written, uh, his, his body of written work is so large. Um, I think it, it makes the ex- exploration of that journey he's on, I think, I think really um, unique and, and special. So, yeah, I think that's, I think that's, uh, I think that's, that's probably going to stick with me probably forever, I would think. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think most people are like, I'm not trying to. I've never put that together until just how you said, you know, I was asking questions and then I read the confessions. And I've been thinking just the past couple weeks, how much questions are in the confessions? Yeah. Like, I came to the confessions in the middle of a philosophy undergrad and compared to most other philosophy works, he offers, you know, so few answers. But you're like, oh, yeah, we're asking the same (laughs) questions. We're on the way together. Right. There's a sense I found, like he talks about it in um, in his confessions. He talks about scripture uh, having this character of growing along with the reader, right? Chris Karakum, it grows along with you as you read. And and uh, I've kind of felt like there's a sense in which that happens with his work too. You know, like it's like the deeper I go, the deeper the questions I throw at him, the deeper the responses. You know, the more challenges I give him, the you know the the more satisfactory his his answers. And um, I don't really know how to explain that other than to say he was, you know, an incredibly gifted and important um, writer. Yeah. It kind of makes it frustrating to write a thesis. Yeah, well, for sure. Because <laughs> you're like, oh, here's the answer. Then you yeah. go back to check that and you're like, no, that wasn't the answer. There's something else there. Uh, yeah. yeah, I feel that. So you wanted to do graduate work. You wanted to stay with Augustine. How did you get to the project you you worked on at Durham? Um, I assume your book is a revised version of your thesis. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us what what was that project and how did it come about? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so I was interested in. I think I don't think I knew what I was interested in. To be honest with you, I think I I wanted to. I went to Durham thinking I was going to work on Augustine's, um, well, his theology of Scripture, and I did end up doing that. I wanted to figure out what's the role of Scripture in this journey, in this process, like of finding truth, right? And um, and I had all kinds of ideas about how I might go about doing that. And it turns out, you know, <laughs> what I ended up doing was like completely different than what I thought I was going to do. Um, and I think a lot of it came. I remember I, I had um, I had this great conversation with Carol, Carol Harrison when she was still at Durham. And um, I remember sitting in her sitting in her office, um, drinking tea and eating hot cross buns. Uh, during Easter week, and 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 we, we we were talking about you know how I might go about unraveling what it is I was trying to get at, and um, she mentioned to me you know something that doesn't get enough play in Augustine, but which is kind of an interesting idea is this idea of of narratio, this idea of like how he thinks about um narr- like narrative in the, the traditional sort of classical um, rhetorical sense and and when she said that it was like the light bulb kind of went on in my head and I went ah I think that's a way into what I was what I'm trying to get at and so then for the next three years or so I basically just wrestled with this question of like how does Augustine think about scripture in light of this um this rhetorical notion of narratio uh because you know narratio just to kind of go off a little bit here. Narratio um, in its classical form is often translated as the facts of the case, right? That's that's its typical 
form it's given. So yeah. in like a forensic oration, you know, in a law court or something, the idea is that the lawyer will present the narratio, he'll lay out the facts, and then we'll proceed to arguments, right? And but if you look at how some of the rhetoricians, like like uh, Quintilian and Cicero, for example, if you look at how they use that term, you see there's a real development that takes place, and it actually becomes really important in terms of crafting the argument itself. And narratio takes on a character where it's actually putting forth an argument, not just setting the stage for the argument. And I began thinking, I wonder how, I wonder if this has a bearing on how Augustine thinks about scripture, you know, the story of scripture. Does he think about it as sort of setting the setting the table, as it were, for the argument that he's going to then make in his treatises and, and sermons and so forth? Or does he see scripture as a narrative, as a narratio, that actually has a kind of argument embedded in it? And could I trace that? By by looking at how narratio is used in in the um, in the classical tradition as it developed, and so that's kind of what I did. Um, so I spent some time, you know, just kind of delving into the development of narratio, how it how it you know the key features, how it developed, how it um, came to be important for for crafting arguments, and then I teased it out in in Augustine's sermons, and um, and so I mean it led to what I think are some pretty interesting <laughs> interesting results, um, and. What I, what I I think, I guess what I found was what I think happened or what I think is going on in Augustine's understanding of scripture is he um, he sees it as a kind of divine oration where God is laying forth this narratio, which which can which in which we can participate in and even rise beyond. And his his sermons then, which is kind of what I focused on, particularly in my book, his sermons are sort of an exercise in in teasing out this process so okay what do you mean when you say a narrative that is also putting forth an argument as opposed to setting the stage yeah um so there's there would be a couple of ways to think about this so you know um so on the one hand you could say that It's sort of natural. I think we we intuitively understand that when somebody crafts a narrative, they're doing it with a very particular, um, from a particular vantage point, with a particular perhaps aim in mind, right? And so we can talk about, you know, kind of a spin that happens in a narrative, right? We craft a narrative to make something look a certain way. So that right. that was going on in in the development of narratio in the classical tradition. So that's one aspect. But another aspect I think is really important is there was a shift. I think certainly in Cicero and again in Quintilian and and throughout um, the way some of those principles were applied in the rhetorical tradition, there was a shift away from a more chronological um, structure to even a more logical structure. And so it came to be pretty widely accepted, I, I argue, that you could craft a narrative that wasn't necessarily chronologically accurate, like it, it wouldn't have necessarily matter that much. I mean, to an extent it would. And of course, in certain circumstances, it matters more than in others. But I think right. just overall, we could say that there's a movement away from a strict sort of chronological rendering of narratio towards a more logical rendering, which resembles much more the form of an argument. And so then mm -hmm. what you find then is what matters in the order 
um, in the order in the sequence, the ordering sequence of a narrative is not so much what happened, you know, uh, first or second or you know third or so on, but actually how do these pieces logically connect to one another, right? And so right. there's a there's a really distinct shift. And then the the other piece sort of that I'll add to this is, um, with these developments, there was a growing sense that you could make an argument on distinct levels. Because one of the one of the challenges that somebody like Augustine would have have to deal with, and he kind of does in a number of places, though not not necessarily explicitly, but I think it comes up a few times. And the challenge is basically this: that if you're an if you're an orator and you're speaking, or or a preacher and you're preaching, and you're preaching about truth, and you can apprehend this, you know, immaterial reality, or at least in some sense can apprehend this immaterial reality that is truth, but your audience cannot. What are you supposed to do? If you speak truthfully, your audience will not understand you. If you speak according to them, you know, you kind of accommodate your language for them, you're lying to them, right? And this was a big deal for Augustine, right? And so how do you overcome that? Well, one of the ways you can overcome that is by constructing a narratio, which uses the language of, you know, material language of history and so forth, but has within it certain metaphorical relationships and so on that can actually um, reach both sort of the person at the lower level, let's say, and the person who is who is at the higher level, who's able to then kind of move beyond the material and mm. and think about you know contemplate the um, the immaterial. So I think there were there were a lot of these pieces going on at the same time, and I think in Augustine, what I argue anyway is that he picks up on these things, and he really just um, he develops them and he crafts he, he he uses them to make sense of what's going on in scripture and then apply that in his sermons. Mm. Well, that's fascinating. I feel like one of the problems that's come up a few times on the podcast, but a lot in my conversations with scholars, is the sort of platonic gap of just how do you know truth, especially in political discourse, this question of like, how do I get, how do we communicate um, if I can apprehend truth and you can't? So that's, that's very interesting. Uh, thinking about I mean, in some ways, the way to do that. I mean, in some ways, that the problem you just articulated is precisely the problem of Scripture. Like that's that's exactly right. what's going on, right? That's the problem Scripture is meant to solve in some ways or or overcome, right? Yeah. And so I think I think you know, um, you know, the answer might be <laughs> to look at how Augustine treats Scripture, right? Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. That's that's good. Before we get into the book, tell me a little bit about rhetoric, especially in Augustine. I feel like everyone sort of uses the trope of, yeah, we know Augustine's trained as a rhetor, was pursuing imperial rhetoric. What in the world does that mean? Give us a little context. Who is he reading or trained under? Um, I know Cicero often comes up, but there's more than just Cicero when looking at sort of his rhetorical influences. So yeah. for me, for anyone else, give me a little background on what it means to be uh, a rhetorician. Yeah, sure. So um, so Augustine, as you mentioned, Augustine was trained um, to 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 speak. I mean, he was a trained speaker or. Yeah. Um, and uh, and this he wouldn't have been you know, this was not unique in his day. This was this was common for a well-educated person to be well-educated in the art of of speaking. OK, so this is this is very common. 
Um, and so, you know, he gets a job um, as, you know, so he ends up teaching, he ends up teaching um, students of rhetoric. So he becomes a teacher, professor, basically, and then also um, is a professional rhetor. So he's actually, you know, performing speeches on behalf, presumably, of the empire or, you know, whoever the um, the immediate political leader was at the time, right? So, so that's, that's kind of his job. Now, in terms of what constituted his training, we know a little bit. I mean, we know he knew the classics uh, from antiquities. We know he knew them. We know he knew Vero and he knew, well, all of them, really. He knew, he knew all of them. Yeah. And then we know, and, and some of them would have been committed to memory to at least certain portions of them. That would have been mm. common. Right? So we know that. And certainly when we when you read A City of God, a lot of that comes out. That training really just kind of flows out. And you yeah. know that he knows those authors really, really, really well. Um, Cicero would have been really important. Now, Cicero wouldn't have been the only one he studied. You're right. But the reason why Cicero gets a lot of emphasis in um, conversations about Augustine's rhetoric is because most of, it appears anyway, it, it, from what we can tell, most of Augustine's training is Ciceronian, right? So it may not have been in Cicero only, but he was considered to be the pinnacle. And Augustine... Um, Augustine tells us that when he was 19 years old, he came across famously, came across Cicero's Hortensius. Now, it's a weird thing for him to say that. He says that in his confessions. It's a weird thing because presumably Augustine would have already known this work. Um, so, you know, scholars are kind of divided on what it means yeah. to say that he you know, discovered he came it. Across. Uh, but right. But what's often what's often adduced from this discovery is that Cicero talks a lot about philosophy. Right. So Hortensius is believed to have been composed right after Cicero lost his um, his daughter. Um, and so he's in sort of a, a period in his life where he's he's sort of withdrawn from the public eye and he's doing a lot of contemplative work. And he's thinking about, you know, the value of philosophy over the value of rhetoric for sort of the city, the civic um, life. Right. And so Augustine latches on to this theme of, you know, valuing philosophy over, let's say, over rhetoric. And a lot of scholarship kind of sees this in the confessions and thinks, okay, this is the thing that 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 ignited his love for philosophy and set him on a course for discovering truth, which eventually led him to the you know Neoplatonists and so on and so on. Okay. Um, in reality, the picture is actually a lot more complex than that. Augustine never really gives up Cicero. He never really gives up that rhetorical training that he had. And um, and so a lot of times I think you're right when you suggest that like uh, that discussions of rhetoric in Augustine often just kind of mention Cicero, but then move on to like, you know, yeah, he was trained in rhetoric. But then here's the real stuff when he started engaging in, you know, Platonic philosophy and you met Ambrose and all that stuff. But in reality, Cicero had a profound impact on him lasting throughout his life. I mean, he goes from being a trained teacher of rhetoric and professional speaker to becoming almost seamlessly. I mean, there's a, there's a small window where he's sort of retreated, but almost seamlessly into becoming a preacher who yeah. is giving orations very regularly. I mean, we have roughly, let's say 900 sermons extant from Augustine's that Augustine preached and estimations vary on, you know, sort of what percentage of his total corpus that um, represents, but one estimate is that it's only 10%. So right. It's possible that Augustine preached 230 some odd times a year. So he was 
in, in a lot of ways, he was a speaker, an orator. He was a rhetor, even as a Christian. Um, and so uh, it's important, I think, to recognize the influence of Cicero and, and other Ciceronian um, uh, influences on him in his training as a young, you know, younger, younger boy, younger man. But I think it's also really important to recognize that those were not just sort of things that happened and then he moved on from. These are things that continue to shape and influence his life and thinking and work um, throughout his entire uh, throughout his entire life. Right. Because it's just this irony in his biography. He says, no, I'm done with rhetoric. I'm going to step out of politics. And then less than a decade later, yeah, he speaks for a living and he's back in the office of bishop doing very political things. I mean, I think I th- my own my own view on this is that I think that, you know, I think when he talks about the Hortensius, I think I think we we misread him when we say that he he saw this as a sort of switch from rhetoric to philosophy, sort of a change of gears. I think what he sees is he sees a way to integrate them because mm. that's what Cicero's vision really was. Cicero's yeah. vision was not to not to get rid of rhetoric. I mean, that, that was his you know, that's his lifeblood. Um and I think that's what Augustine sees in Cicero, because he talks about um, finally seeing Cicero's true heart, right? That's the language he uses in the Confessions. And what is Cicero's true heart? Well, Cicero's true heart is this is this um, merging of the rhetoric with the philosophical. So I think that's what we find going on, is that he finds that you don't have to just use rhetoric to persuade for you know somebody else's goal, you know, like based on a based on a message that you're given, you know, to mm. to present. Um, you don't have to simply use rhetoric to try and impress people. He's saying, no, you can use these tools of rhetoric in consort with um, the true philosophy, in consort with, you know, wisdom and truth. So I think that's really the key, the key turning point there. And with that view, obviously rhetoric continues to play an important role. Tell me from my own research interests, what are these tools of rhetoric that we're pulling from Cicero? You talked about Neuratio, but um, other than what we have in on Christian teaching, there's not a ton of his own sort of methodological behind the scenes. Uh, sure. Yeah. What is yeah, he pulling so, from Cicero? That's rhetorical. Yeah. So there are. OK, so when we're trying to untangle that particular question, it can actually become quite thorny quite fast because there's a disparity between what the manuals the rhetorical manuals say you should do and what the best rhetoricians were actually doing okay so there's okay. so um so both cicero and quintilian they make it very clear in their manuals that they're going to set out a bunch of rules and a bunch of guidelines it's like you know like a grammar book or you know like a like a you know a, um, a syntax book or something that you would read today um but they also make it very clear that these are just guidelines and the the best rhetoricians are the ones that are going to be able to sort of take them on and then and then adapt them and mold them and even right. break them when they need to right and so your question of what sorts of principles is he taking on is almost an impossible question to ask because what he's actually taking on is he's taking on that spirit that lies under the under the text, at least that's the goal, right? That he's taking on this the spirit that's under the text. That's why you read the poets. That's why you read Virgil and and Barrow and so forth. That's why you read the classics is not to memorize the actual words, but to get to the spirit that's under the text. And I think this is this is again why 
Augustine is so struck by Ambrose's um, sort of um, uh, dichotomy between, you know, the letter, the letter and the spirit, right? Borrowing from Paul, the letter and the spirit. And this becomes so important for Augustine's own future, you know, view of scripture and exegesis is that he recognizes, oh, wait a second, there's the letter, but then there's the spirit under the text, which is the exact thing that he's been trying to imbibe from, you know, his whole educational uh, yeah. career to that point. So having said all that, um, so we can we can pull out a few things, right? So um, so there were there were specific speeches that were supposed to be given in specific circumstances. So I've, I've indicated Neratio had a particular role in the law court setting. So this would have been a, a what's often called a forensic speech. Um, yeah. And this was um, this was often considered to be sort of the basic speech structure. So you would start with, you know, uh, um, an opening, an introduction, and it was supposed to be specifically tailored to um, to orient the audience, to give them a to give them a positive disposition towards you, right? Because you're the one that has to convince them. So you try and you know say something that gives them a positive disposition towards you. Then you construct the narratio. You lay out the facts. Here's what here's what happened. A, B, and C. Of course, that narratio is supposed to be um, slanted, you know, yeah. to, to favor the argument you're going to be making. And then you can lay out um, your arguments, right? So then you can begin to lay out your arguments. And there are a lot of different ways that you could construct an argument depending on, you know, the case at hand and so forth. But more or less, these arguments are going to be logical in character. So you're going to say, you know, you're going to give a, narr a, narr a narratio that says, you know, Jimmy was in in the ballroom before mikey came in holding a candlestick then in your argument you'll say well therefore we can conclude that you know so and so or that uh, jimmy killed mikey or so forth so yeah. it's it's a very sort of basic structure um and but it's one that does tend to get followed quite a bit as far as we can tell in in the law court setting now that's just one speech setting and a lot of times when people engage in rhetoric in augustine and in other patristic authors um, that's sort of where the engagement ends in this sort of foundational forensic um, context. But there were other really important contexts. And the other one that I talk about a lot in my book is the deliberative context. And so if you can imagine being in, you know, um, in a political um, uh, meeting of some sort, and you're trying to persuade your uh, colleagues to take a particular course of action, well, what's going to persuade them? Well, you have to think about what they are going to think is valuable in their own selfish future, right? And so what a deliberative oration typically includes is this, this sort of forward-looking um, picture. So you're painting a picture for them. So you're saying, mm -hmm. if we choose option A, which is, of course, the option I want you to choose, then your life is going to be so great. You're going to have this, you're going to have that, you're going to have this, you're going to have that. But if you choose option B, which you're free to do if you really want to, um, you're going to have all this destruction and, you know, terrible things. But, I mean, it's up to you. You make the choice, right? That's kind of, you know, in sort of a general sense, that's kind of how a deliberative oration would work. So Augustine is learning these distinctions, right? This is one of the things he's learning, these distinctions between different kinds of speeches. What this means, though, is that when he sets down to write or when, he's, when he gets up to preach, he has a, a really keen sense of what kinds of approaches, what kinds of arguments he's going to try and, you know, pick from in order to get the result he wants from his audience, right? So right. when he's 
when he's engaging a particular kind of audience, he's going to use a different kind of um, speech structure than when he engages, you know, a different, uh, you know, another, another kind of audience. So um, those are some of the general things that he's getting. Um, he's also getting, of course, uh, you know, a very uh, thorough education in grammar and, you know, all the kind of the basic, the basic rules um, as far as that goes. Um, but that's kind of it. And then what is he also, the other thing he's getting is a ton of practice. So he's getting a lot of practice in his education. So, you know, get yeah. up there and, and recite a speech, or he would be given a context like, um, uh, you, know, um, you know, in this particular work, so-and-so makes this argument, we want you to get up and make a counter argument, you know? And so he, all of these kinds of exercises, um, this, this formed a really major part of his, of his education. And in fact, he alludes to winning, winning a, an award at one point for, for doing an exercise like this. Yeah. So that kind of, that's kind of in general terms, that's kind of the, um, the rhetorical education he would have had. But the, the important point, I think for us is that the education he had prepared him very well to, um, to apply arguments that he wanted to apply in particular circumstances in his letters in his sermons and his other writings and so forth right when you're doing your thesis reading through all these sermons do you get to a point where you're like oh yeah there's that argument there's that argument again well do they sort of follow routine structure structures or are they uh i don't know more um integrated as as sermons like is it tools from here and there yeah, I think I think well, so. There are a couple of things I would say. Number one is um, you can certainly find recurring arguments for that Augustine makes. Right. Um, but so like okay, so one of the challenges when dealing with his sermons, especially his sermones at Populum, which is the largest group of of sermons that we have from him, um, when dealing with those sermons, the challenge is one of the main challenges is. We don't actually have really good information about when he preached them, right? So the chronology of these sermons. So we have like 500 sermons, and yeah, I mean there are guesses. Scholars will guess about when he preached them, but the evidence they're using is sometimes pretty suspect and and circumstantial at best. Um, and that's not to criticize them; that they're just working with the best evidence we have. And so what that means is, um. It's sometimes hard to recognize, you know, the young the young preacher Augustine is very different from the from the you know the old preacher Augustine, as it were. And so, um, it's hard to um, it's hard to what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to chart a kind of um, his growth or how arguments might change or develop over time. And so. Um, when you see two arguments that are similar but not the same, is that because they developed over time, or is it because he's making a different, trying to make a different argument, or he's drawing on a different tool? Or so the question you ask becomes very complicated to try yeah. and answer because um, we just don't know when he's preaching and what sort of context he's preaching in a lot of the time. So like um, uh, the 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 sermones at Populum currently are organized thematically so you would have like his sermons on scripture are kind of in one block and his sermons on you know um feast days are in another block and you know different you know sermons on lent and 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 easter and so forth are in a different block and then there's a whole group of sermons that are kind of just just we don't know where else to put them so they're in yeah, this block. um yeah and so so you'll find that a number of scholars have done really great work analyzing you know his christmas sermons or analyzing his you know lenten sermons or what have you um, and there's value there. You can see some similarities uh, in terms of his argumentation there. So it seems like 
every year, as far as we can tell, he seems to be drawing on similar arguments to make similar points, at least, you know, more or less. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. So you can see similarities there. Uh, but beyond that, it's hard. They're hard to pick out. Um, and, you know, to add to add additional confusion to the whole mix, when you're talking about the sermon, the genre of a sermon is its own animal. And and it's it varies from person to person. So it's very difficult to get a handle on what kinds of tools should we expect him to be drawing on? Like what mm. what should we expect to see in a sermon? Um, it's certainly not a law court. We know that. It's also not a political assembly. We know that. It's not a funeral. We know, like, so, like, what, you know, what should we be expecting here? Um, and to be honest with you, the case is still kind of open um, as to how we best talk about the genre um, of the sermon. So, well, that's very I mean, all of this, yeah, yeah, all of this is kind of, is why, so in my book, what I did was, I looked at it and I said, I think some of these challenges, challenges that I've just mentioned, I think some of these challenges are um, are the reasons why Augustine's sermons simply are not treated as you know, main sources in their own rights, typically. Um, you know, as I said earlier, Augustine preached like 230 plus times a year. This guy was a preacher. Yet yeah. A lot of our dealings with his sermons are sort of as you know supplements. To his doctrinal treatises, or, or you know, they, they help to nuance different things, and that that's been helpful. But at the same time, it seems to me like we're missing out on something about who Augustine was. He was a speaker. He was an orator. He was a preacher, and also a theologian, and you know, a great philosopher, and all all those things as well. But but he's also a, you know a preacher in his own right. Yeah. And the challenge with these sermons that I just mentioned. Has made it difficult for scholars to get at those sermons as a as a resource in their own right because how are we supposed to deal with them? So the approach I took is I said because you asked if if you could notice patterns reading through the sermons and what I noticed was Augustine appears to have certain patterns when he's speaking specifically to certain groups of people. Okay. So for example, in sermons. Um, uh, uh, 352 and 353, I think, he outlines, he gives he gives us a sense of three different groups that he sees in his audience um, that he's preaching to. So he has the catechumens, who are people that he has to, you know, train and 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 um, and argue them sort of into the church, as it were. He yeah. has the the neophytes, right? The he calls them the infants, the the newly baptized believers. And then he has what he calls the faithful, which is basically everyone else. Um, and so what I did was I looked through his sermons and I said, okay, how does he preach to these different groups? So when he's talking to the catechumens, what sorts of strategies does he draw on? When he's talking to the the um, the neophytes, what kind of strategies does he draw on there? Are they different? Are they similar? And then same thing with the faithful. And what I found was there were distinct differences. I mean, at least that's what I sensed. So when he's talking to the catechumens, I suggest that he's he's using forensic kinds of arguments. So he's basically making a case for the church. He's saying, you know, you guys are interested in possibly entering the church. Let me convince you that this is the right thing for you to do. And so he draws on scripture kind of like Neratio in the um, 
you know, in the forensic sense as the facts of the case, right? He he lays out what scripture says, and then what does he do? He goes on and makes arguments. What does this mean now for how you should proceed or what you should conclude? Which I thought was really interesting. And I noticed him doing this over and over and over again in the sermons that we know for sure he was preaching to the catechumens. Um, and by the way, he mentions often the catechumens there. And so he'll say, you know, speaking specifically to the catechumens, you know, A, B, and C. So he gives us clear hints that this is going on. And then if you look at his Easter sermons, which are more or less dedicated to the neophytes, to the newly baptized, you find him completely shifting the kinds of arguments he's making. No longer does he have to argue for them to enter into the church. Now he's arguing for them to um, sort of, they, they've, they've been baptized, they've taken on a certain identity, and he's arguing for them to sort of live in a way that, that, um, that reflects that identity. And so what does he do? He takes on a more deliberative um, posture, like I explained earlier. He's looking forward. He's saying, look, here's what you can be. Here's who you really are now. But if you want, you can go and do this other stuff. But that's not in, a, that's not in line with who you are now. And so we notice this, this, this shift. And then again, in the faithful, when he's talking to the faithful, I notice another shift in that he's not really making an argument in the same, in, in the same senses. He's actually trying to raise them beyond scripture to contemplate you know the the immaterial realities right. as they were so there's a kind of at least what i argue is there's a kind of um uh, coherent trajectory in his understanding of the process of of christian maturation and it's reflected in his homiletic strategy yeah straight from the catechumens through to the neophytes through to the faithful there's a sense of progression where his argument kind of has a coherent um, arc and where his dealing with scripture in particular becomes progressively um, uh, attuned to the, the person's place in this in this arc. Right. So scripture becomes first this, you know, this the facts of the case that he can argue from. Then it becomes the thing that the neophytes are to enter into uh, in a deliberative Oration, and then finally, it becomes a thing that that the faithful are supposed to ascend beyond, insofar as they are able. Um, so, anyways, that's kind of I just gave you sort of the whole the whole picture of the book. Uh, no, that's helpful. But, but yeah, I think I hope it's helpful. Yeah, that's fascinating. I do think how to approach the, the sermons is a huge problem. There's also just a ton of them. Yeah. I mean, speaking honestly, to say I'm going to write a a dissertation on. Augustine on the Trinity. Well, we have a book on the Trinity, and you can kind of say, oh, well, you may mention it here or there. Right. To say, yeah, I'm going to write a dissertation on the sermons. That's a big undertaking. Um, yeah, you have to set up guardrails for yourself. And of course, when you do that, automatically you open yourself up to, you know, potentially being blind to, you know, other other details. But that's just the way the way it is, at least right now. Yeah. I think Lewis mentioned to me when we first met, he said, oh, write your thesis on the confessions. The rest will find its way in there, but yeah. don't try and worry about three books or four books. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I don't want to keep you too long, but I'd love to hear a little bit just about what you're working on now. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I spend most of my time now um, working on a project that I hope will eventually see the light of day uh, on Augustine and the self. Now, of course, as as you no, um, this is perhaps like the most 
written on topic in um, in all of scholarship on Augustine. Uh, so it's not a small thing. Um, but what I found was as I as I kept bumping into conversations about Augustine in the South, um, what I found was there's a lot of really great work being done sort of from a philosophical perspective. You know, Philip Carey's work is probably, you know, leading the charge there. Um, talking about his Neoplatonic um, residences and, and relationship mm-hmm. to you know, Plotinus and so forth. Um, and that's always, that's really great work. Then there's there's a lot of work, as I'm sure you know, a lot of work being done sort of tracing Augustine's influence, right? And so we end up reading Augustine as, you know, a proto-Cartesian or a proto-Freudian or, you know, whatever. Um, and so there's a lot of that kind of work being done as well. Um, there's a lot of like psychoanalytic work that was done, well, not so much now, but in the last handful of decades, there was a lot of psychoanalytic work being done on Augustine, you know, exploring him as a as a sort of self-reflexive um, guy and, and you know, a right. guy who's sort of uh, who had this sense of the unconscious, even though maybe he didn't really talk about it like that. Um, and and those are all like I think those are all interesting. Those are all interesting projects. And I, and I find them fascinating. But what I noticed was there was like there was nothing being done that talked about um, Augustine's more, say, Christian or theological dimensions that that contributed to this conversation. Or I shouldn't say nothing, but there's very little being done on that front. And it just it's oh it struck me for a long time um, because I've always been a little bit uneasy with these um, with these simple applications of neoplatonism to to augustine i always feel like um the picture is a lot more complex than that and and to just say you know augustine takes on this neoplatonic theme and develops it in this way um it has some value but i think it's missing a lot of lenses that he's that he's wearing while he's taking on those themes yeah uh, and so so uh, you know, my my thinking was, OK, so how can I get at this question of, you know, what the role is of his theological disposition? But even more than that, his sort of like uh, I wanted to talk about it sort of in terms of his Christian spirituality, if that makes sense. So like his his experience, you know, the guy's reading the Psalms, he's engaging in scripture, he's preaching. He's So, you know, what what does what do these experiences say and how do they inform what we think about his invention, as it were, of of the self, of the inner self, um, and so in some ways maybe the project, I don't know, I don't know how it's going to turn out yet, but maybe it's going to add just nuance to the ongoing discussion, or you know maybe maybe it'll be bigger than that, who knows? Um, but I'm just fascinated by that by that that what I it seems to be just kind of a hole in scholarship on this topic, given that the topic is so often trotted out and and you know and covered yeah. so yeah that's absolutely right frustratingly even i was reading through heidegger's you know platonism and christianity in which he basically says like oh i wanted to look at how augustine's anthropology you know forms his ontology and heidegger is so theological you know more than people get away with today in philosophical circles um because mm-hmm. like why are we not doing not that work not not ideas work but work more like that um where there's some crossover between yeah these deeply theological lenses and the philosophical ones um and as i was mentioning you before you started like that's 
sort of why I got into a podcast, why I got into a PhD, because I was reading theologians over here and philosophers over here and just thinking like, you guys need to talk and connect. I mean, I'm interested in where does his rhetoric meet his his philosophy and his theology in yeah, in the confessions and the self. I know that's what's frustrating work to do because you have to to get through a lot of a lot of different lenses, as you said. But yeah. Part of the challenge, too, is how we approach it. So we say um, this is not not to criticize your question, because I think your question was was correct. But to say something like how does his rhetoric impact his theology and his philosophy is to kind of give the impression that, okay, so we have these distinct three distinct things. Now, how do they sort of, you know, interact? And, I, you know, for the sake of, you know, scholarly uh, clarity, of course, we have to do that to an extent. But I think in something like Augustine in particular, I think we got to be really careful because, you know, it goes back to what I said earlier, where there's this easy, there's this easy tendency to say, oh, yeah, he he see, he discovers the Hortensius. Therefore, he kind of leaves rhetoric in a sense as much as he can or he tries to and embraces philosophy. And it's like, well, that's not really what's going on. There's a there's a much more complicated relationship that that then informs everything else. Right. Yeah. Um, so so it's you know, it's a challenge to kind of pull these threads and and and, you know, walk around in circles as it were in your in your in your scholarship but it's fun yeah oh it's a blast more and more i i think you're right you can't you can't excise little pieces it's funny nowhere in the confessions does augustine say oh and then i learned about christianity right Right, you'd think we'd have at least somewhere uh but it was just sort of always in the background um and i i think that's the case with the platonism and the the rhetoric right. um, yeah yeah no I, I think that's fair well i don't want to keep you too long um so tell me if you could recommend anyone else to read not just for a podcast but to read who's doing really good work i know that you have um hopefully some different areas of scholarship than some of the past guests i've had on so who are you working with and reading um I, I actually have recently read three. I'm gonna mention. I'm gonna give you three books. Thank you. Three books that I read that are not directly related to the kind of work I do, really. Uh, but they're Augustine. They're books on Augustine. Um, one book was by um, Coleman Ford. I don't know if you know okay. it. It it's on Augustine's letters. Um, a bond between souls, I think it's called, and uh, it was published in 2022 based on his dissertation. Um, I think he did it at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, the the what I what I why I'm re- recommending it is because um, it it there aren't a ton of full length monographs that deal with Augustine's letters in particular, um, or even his sermons for that matter. Um, and 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 Ford's book does do that, but it also gets at Augustine's personal side, which I think is something that's kind of missing in a lot of scholarship on Augustine. He's not just a thinking head. He's he's you know, there's there's a person who's on, as I said earlier, he's a person who's on a journey. He's searching for something. And I feel like in in Ford's book that comes out. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I learned a lot from it. Um, I thought it was interesting, that perspective. Um, so that's one I would, I would kind of throw out there as something I read recently. Um, the other book I, I wanted to mention was Greg Weeb's book recently came out with OUP. OUP um, on on Augustine's demonology. Uh, I forget the title exactly. Demon, uh, yeah, I forget what it's called. Fallen Angels, I think, in Augustine's. 
theology, something like that. Um, it's a good book. Again, the reason I learned a ton from it, but again, the reason I think it's so good is because it's on a topic that is almost never addressed, um, demonology in Augustine. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, particularly, he emphasizes how the uh, the world Augustine lived in was a world with, you know, active spirits and, and you know, and so on. And so I think what it does is it kind of gives, again, another helpful sort of counterbalance to this overemphasis, I think, on, you know, a, a strictly, you know, platonic or, you know, doctrinal kind of picture we have of Augustine. He's actually a, a guy who's operating as a pastor in a world where there's like spirits and, and you know, all kinds of forces at play, which is like fascinating to think about that. He's writing this like treatise on, you know, the, the Trinity while also maybe that morning uh, chatting with somebody about you know, their, the spirit that they think is hiding behind the bush or whatever, like whatever the case might be. Right. Right? Isn't that so interesting to think about? Um, so anyways, that's that's what I that's why I wanted to kind of mention that book. Um, yeah. And then lastly, I just finished just this week. I just finished um, the collection of essays. This is this is a more of a sort of a, um, I guess, a well-known kind of book, but a collection of essays um, that were published in honor of Patut Burns, Augustine and Tradition, I think it's called. Um, it's a really, really, really great collection. At least I, I thought it was really great. And um, there are a couple of essays in particular. Michael Cameron's essay in there. I mean, I'm I'm I'm. Uh, I, I owe a huge debt to Michael Cameron's work. He's been and he's been very gracious to me personally and and um, in terms of his scholarship. But again, he just he just he has a he has an essay in there that's just fabulous that I think um, anybody interested in scripture and rhetoric in particular uh, definitely need to check out. Um, and then also John Peter Kenny's essay in there is really interesting because he gets at um, he talks about how um, kind of this theme that I've, I've mentioned a few times already this this sort of complexifying, as it were, Augustine's Platonism and seeing it through more of a scriptural lens and some of the other lenses that Augustine is bringing to the table. Um, and I think Kenny does a really good job of kind of just laying out some of the issues at play there. Um, but all of the other essays are excellent as well. So great. those would be the three thank I'd you. recommend. I'll check them out. Yeah. Thank good. you. And thank you, Michael, for coming on. Thanks for uh, doing the interview, for chatting with me personally. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Michael Dulaski. If you're interested in his work, go buy his book, Rhetoric and Scripture in Augustine's Homiletic Strategy, Tracing the Narrative of Spiritual Maturation. There's a link in the description. As always, I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard. Our theme music for the show is Oh Great Light by Jess Ray. Check her work out too. If you like the show, subscribe and I'll be back here in a month with another conversation about the life and work of St. Augustine. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next month.